You are listening to Concrete Conversations, an informative podcast brought to you by the Concrete Masonry Association of Australia. We represent the concrete masonry and segmental paving manufacturers in Australia. Our podcast will discuss technical information and case studies with some special guests from our industry. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of the Concrete Masonry Association of Australia. On today's episode of Concrete Conversations, it's my real privilege to have Justin Moss here, who is the Senior Technical Director and Team Leader of the Pavements Design Team at Arcadis, which is the largest non-governmental pavement design team in Australia and presiding over around $15 billion worth of consulting and construction work. Welcome, Justin. Thanks for having me. Justin, before we get into concrete and pavers, I just wondered whether you could share with us a little bit how engineering came to you. I think engineering found me. <laughs> I think like a lot of young people, we, we follow our passions first and it clung to me and I couldn't shake it off. I, I, I wasn't one of those kids who at, at 10 decided it was going to be an engineer. No. I think I wanted to be a truck driver. I wanted to be uh, a scientist. I wanted to ride my bike forever and a day. But I sort of fell into it initially working for a large civil consultancy laboratory. And we investigated all sorts of really interesting things from concrete to pavers to space shuttle tiles, would you believe? We investigated the exterior of high-rise buildings in Sydney. I was hanging off, you know, 60-storey MLC tower buildings when I was just starting out and work with some really influential people, fascinating people, and I just got a bug for it. And and I, as I say to all my team, every day that I work in this business, I learn something new, and that's true today after 37-odd years of experience. And it just it keeps my interest. How did you sort of get into the focus around pavements and, and paving, I guess, more pavement design? How did that come about? It's a funny thing because pavements, people think, and I can remember the first 20 years of my career, my mum used to regularly say to me, what do you do again, Justin? <laughs> and, of course, you say to the layman, I'm a pavement engineer, and they say, you're in finance. Because I think you said payment. <laughs> um, and uh, it's it's much more than meets the eye. I mean, people think it's just about thickness design. You know, well, that's, that's a pretty linear, simplistic view of it, and there's much, much more to that about materials and cycling. But, again, I, I didn't seek it. it. It found me. There were some major projects when I was just starting out that were – a major infrastructure project on Pacific Highway particularly. And, and I just found it engaging, good mix of field work, lab work, research. It just ticked all the boxes. How does it differ when you're talking, I guess, civil engineering and other forms of engineering? How does pavement design differ from that, from your experience? Well, I mean, within the space of engineering, it's civil is its whole thing. And within civil, there is a huge number of subspecialities. If you look at our team, for example, and our team specifically just deals with highways or, or what we now call mobility, we have six or seven specialist disciplines. And then if you look at outside of our mobility business, we have urban architecture or, or what we call now places. And there's a whole civil subset of disciplines in that. So there's something for everyone if you want to get a civil engineering. Probably the key thing is the fact that it's about materials engineering at its heart. It's about understanding the way materials behave. If you look at a uh, pavement, whether it be granular or asphalt or concrete, you have to understand the way 
those structures behave when loaded. What's interesting about them, of course, is we only build, a, let's say, a 200 millimeter thick pavement for a heavy duty situation. And it's expected to take tens of millions of, of very heavy axles over its life. And we're asking an awful lot of it. Mm. So how does it differ from most, well, particularly structural engineering? The thing that's that's unique to pavements is that these are what we call uniformly supported structures, whereas a structure is pinned up on two ends. It's mm. simply supported. So pavements is unique because you're dealing with the behaviour of uniformly supported materials on a, a variety of support conditions, whether it be swamp, which we've definitely built pavements over in the past, as we're doing now in Sydney Gateway, mm-hmm. or even bedrock, as we do in a lot of the tunnels where we excavate to bedrock and place pavements over the top. Drainage is a real interesting challenge. Keeping the pavement in a stable moisture condition is critical to its performance. So drainage is a very important aspect of pavements. But more and more now, pavement design is as much about sustainability and constructability as anything else. Mm. So, you know, where where are you getting materials from? How much of it's reused? Can we reuse more? Will it perform the same as we expect? Constructability is a huge issue. Contractors often confuse or, or accuse designers of being pen pushers and one of the famous terms that's thrown around is um, subbies and suits (laughs) and that's the way they refer oh you don't have any field experience come on (laughs) but we do get out in the field an awful lot and we interact with people in our industry so constructability understanding the way things are built the order that the things are built is it practical is it functional is it safe safety in design i mean there's it just it fans off in all sorts of directions Justin, because you've been in the industry for a significant time now, what have you seen? I mean, you've just mentioned about how things are referred to differently and and now water being a key element. What are some of the other changes that you've seen over time in pavements and pavement design? Well, look, if you speak to most pavement designers, they'll tell you it's a very slow-moving technology. One of the problems, of course, is the asset. So the asset life is so long. You don't see outcomes for half, at least halfway through its life. So we're talking about this road just outside this office. We'll be talking about a 20 or 40 year design life. Mm. So we don't see results until at least the halfway mark on that. So what we do today, we don't yield any benefit from until 10 years time or 20 years or 30 years. And then we have the risk averse client, Yep. the government client, the big contractor, the financier, they're very very cautious about taking th- taking any risks that are going to put put their infrastructure at jeopardy or in jeopardy I should say so what's changed over the past 20 years apart from the core technology about about the design the thickness of, of pavements is probably mostly the material side of it more so now than ever with the 2030 targets and so forth and our company has a great commitment genuine commitment to sustainability, we're always thinking about how we can minimise the footprint of the pavement. I mean, typically the pavements you use these days are very, very dirty, Mm. whether it be bitumen, which is one of the highest embodied energy components, not to mention cement, which is also highly high energy embodiment. We look at not just ways to substitute one material for another, but we look at alternative treatments. So, for example, we've been involved in pavement construction where we've considered not doing anything as an option right because in terms of the life cycle and that's actually another key change 
we'll just talk about it in a minute. But in, in terms of the, the life cycle impact, you need to look at what the, the footprint is on, not just in terms of carbon sustainability or, or lack thereof, you need to look at the human sustainability. What about availability? What about political impact? You know, we could build a very, very light pavement out here today and we could come back every 12 months to substantially rebuild it. Now, that's got a low capital cost, but it's got a very high life cycle cost. That has a political impact. That has a social impact. It makes the road less available. It's closed more frequently. The community doesn't like it. There's a safety impact, yep. not just to workers, but to, to road users. So understanding the life cycle viability of something is crucial. So just now that you sort of have mentioned, okay, well, you've got about a 40-year life cycle and, and are there any areas in Sydney or particular aspects of some pavements where they got things wrong, you know, that you, you walk along now that you've had that 40 years of, of hindsight, I guess. Is there any learnings from that or are there any? Absolutely. I'm searching my mind as you mentioned that. <laughs> and I, I, the, the one that comes to mind is councils continually get it wrong. Okay. Councils, as, as I understand it, you know, live on the smell of an oily rag. They've got very limited budgets. Certainly their future budgets are limited. And, and as a result, what they tend to do is go for a capital-focused solution. Mm-hmm. In other words, what will cost me the least today? There is no life, as, as I understand it, there's no life cycle benefit. I mean, I look at the way they maintain all of their assets and it's fairly obvious that they don't have a life cycle focus. Now, it's understandable having to invest a serious amount of capital up front to get 40 years life mm. is something they probably just simply can't afford. Yep. They can't go and bill all their constituents for a forward investment, particularly if those constituents aren't going to be in the neighbourhood for a long time. Well, why would I pay? Yep. And, and governments, well, I don't know the structure between state government or federal government and councils, but it's pretty clear that a lot of it is just patch it up and, and get out. We're okay if we come back in six months' time and do it again and again and again. So, so the lack of life cycle focus by councils is one of the big problems, I think, with local government payments. And when you, I guess, as a pedestrian, you know, you often look at things and you go, oh, the concrete's cracked or, you know, the, the tree roots have come up and it's annoying, you know, and, yeah. and I just wonder, are we being, pardon the pun, but too hard on pavements with everything that they're expected to do? Is there, you know, is there an expectation there that even as designers it's very hard to foresee? There's a lot to unpack in that question. <laughs> I'm reminded of, of when I go on my cycling adventures. I'm obviously, uh, the last trip, for example, I did 5,000 kilometres through Europe and I was head down a lot of, well, head forward a lot of the time and I was seeing lots and lots of pavements. And obviously I was on holidays to separate myself from work and not think about work. But you can't help but think about some of the decisions that led to one solution or another. I think one of the age-old myths is this idea that cracking is a bad thing Mm. you know people say ah my concrete's cracked it must be broken well concrete's largely designed to crack it it has to crack Mm. it's as sure as night follows day it will crack it's all about controlling location of cracks do we worry about them too much probably i i I think if there's a type of concrete pavement called crcp which is continuously reinforced concrete pavement it's designed to have cracking at between sort of 600 millimeters and two meters spacings but it has steel in there to restrain it. But, of course, the average Joe looks at that and says, 
it's broken. It, it must be far. We just looked at a pavement down on Foreshore Road, which has got which is forty four years old. It's right next to Port Botany. It's CRCP. It's cracked at half meter spacings, full width the whole way through. It looks shocking, but it's had one percent pavement replacement in its whole life. One percent. So that's great low cycle value, mm. and cracking isn't a problem. Asphalt cracking is is a different thing, and it depends on the severity. I mean, it typically means that it's it's exceeded its, its fatigue capacity, or it's aged out. It's horses for courses. I, I I think there's an interesting trade off at the moment with some of the infrastructure pavements between aesthetics and value. One of the real options is to use concrete in place of asphalt, which has typically a better life cycle cost than asphalt. But the the public at large is much more comfortable. They get a warm and fuzzy feeling about asphalt because it's smooth and it's quiet. But concrete is all those things. People just don't know it. So perceptions and the public are a little bit frustrating at times. Mm -hmm. It's a little unusual to me that the public should control or decide on a technical issue when they have no understanding about the realities of it. So just switching now to segmental paving projects, could you talk a little bit about some of the projects you've worked on using segmental pavers? We have worked on quite a few. So our particular team works across not just our mobility but also our places, sectors, and, and not just in Australia and other areas as well. We've worked on projects like uh, Port Botany, Moorbank Precinct, which was a massive intermodal and warehouse facility. In terms of scale, it's as big as Redfern, apparently. The whole the whole project, it's, it's, it's a monster. It's still going. And it's got some very, very heavy loading conditions out there. We've used uh, segmental pavers out there. We've used segmental pavers in places like our Darling Square project, all for completely different applications for different reasons. Sometimes it's about constructability. Sometimes it's about value. Sometimes it's about... Aesthetics. If you look at Darling Square, it's more an aesthetic decision where an architect was involved in the first place. But if you look at Moorbank, it was more of a, a value decision. In some cases, it's about managing uh, multi-phase operations. So they sometimes have a temporary phase where there's manual operation and they might remove a pavement, replace it with an automatic phase pavement. So you have these automated, highly autonomous, if you like, gantry cranes running around. It's quite mesmerising to watch. You think that there's someone at the wheel, but in fact, they're all robotically controlled, moving these massive containers around, stacking them five high. So those projects, they're the most recent to come to mind. We have a number of, we're doing a lot of work for Sydney Metro at the moment. And there's a lot of plazas, a lot of rest areas and, you know, walkways, shared paths. What's your key takeaway from... I guess, using segmental pavements in those projects. You mentioned that there's different reasons for it, but what did you learn from using them? My key learning is that the constructor needs to be well-informed. We saw a lot of rookie mistakes in the construction of these things, If you're particularly if you're talking about interlocking pavers, mm -hmm. the choice of sand for bedding and sand for joint filling, two areas massively overlooked. We see people constantly using river sand, for example, for both applications. And you will very quickly turn a interlocking segmented paver project into a basket case and it'll it'll transform from a 20 or 40-year pavement into a one-year pavement overnight. 
lack of confining courses, soldier mm. courses, edges. We've seen we've seen cases where interlocking pavement has been put down beautifully, and then they've put a hundred millimeter sand wedge at the edge of the pavement. And it's, obviously, it's just going to spread. Lack of constructor understanding yep. is a huge problem. Mm. On the other side of the fence, though, when architects are involved, we see aesthetics prioritised over function. More, more specifically, the interaction between the underlying pavement and, 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 and the paver. So if you have, for example, a 200 or 150 mil concrete slab uh, and you're placing pavers over the top, we see architects use a variety of textures and aesthetics, which is great for the for the urban development aspect of it. But there's absolutely no mind about the interaction between the paver and the underlying slab. So, particularly if you look at Sydney City Council, where they require—I'm oh, sorry, it might not be Sydney City Council. Sydney City Council is one of the people, one of the organisations that bonds pavers to concrete pavements. Mm. And if you do that, you have to connect the two layers in a way where they can work in harmony. Mm. And one of the con- one of the things about concrete pavements is they they expand and contract with temperature. And so we put jointing in to control those releases. Mm-hmm. That inevitably means a reflection of those joints. You have to, if you don't allow for it, you will get a reflection of those joints in the form of cracks and mess up the most beautiful architectural solution that you've ever <laughs> seen because they'll have these ugly organic cracks through the pavement. Mm-hmm. So we inevitably have a conversation with the urban architect that goes along the lines of, well, we'll have to put in control joints and there's been some tears, let's say, because they it's destroyed their aesthetic. Yeah. So understanding the interaction between those two things is important. Another problem we've we another learning we've had is that council specs from this is particularly prevalent with our Sydney Metro projects where TFNSW requires the local prevalent specifications to be used. So you must adopt, adopt Asheville Council or Canada Bay Council or Inner West Sydney or City of Sydney, and they're all different. Yes. But what, apart from City of Sydney, which are particularly good, the one thing we notice is that this technology that they're using as their standard drawings, their standard specifications, it's about 40 years old. It's, it's not consistent. We find it. that all the time. Yeah. And we say to councils, let us actually bring it up to Australian standards. And once we do that, it's very easy for everyone. <laughs> but, we, but a lot of councils aren't aware that that's exactly what we are able to do. And we do all of that free of charge. Yeah, just to bring their understanding of Australian standards and we, designing for those. Mm. We'd like to see IPWA or a similar organisation provide some set of national standards specifications yep. or, or, or OSPEC type specifications, which mm. are also very good. But there, there, there's a lot of, I guess you'd say frozen technology where you had this legendary engineering team 20 years ago develop these things and then they've lost that knowledge. So that is one of the biggest challenges in the industry, actually losing the knowledge of um, these older people who, who developed all this stuff originally, replaced by enthusiastic but People who are largely they've, they've lost touch with the the, the gurus. Do you think that's the that defines the key difference if you look at Australia versus the rest of the world? I mean, do you think that that's do you think that that's played out in terms of pavement design around the world? Yeah, I'd say it does. I, I'd say Europe is probably leading the pack. I think their EN specs are excellent, and 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 the 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 formation of the euro and the 
the standardization of things like specification EN specs, for example, mm. was instrumental in in standardizing it. Not not to mention the involvement of countries like Germany, and we all know Germans, they're extremely precise, mm. they're particular, they're fussy, but that plays out in good control specifications for pavements, for pavers, for anything. I don't think the US is nearly as unified. Mm. They do have a national organisation called, well, for highways anyway, FHWA, Federal Highways Association Administration, but that's more of a funding body than a regulatory body, yep. mainly research. And then there's the, the, the airport associations, FAA and so forth. But no, I think more than ever America is 52 countries, but Europe seems to be quite consolidated in terms of their design practices. Mm. Yeah. And do you have a favourite paving project that you've worked on? In- involving pavers? Mm. It's hard to say why one project is a favourite over another. I like the challenge that we had on Darling, Darling Square. It was interesting because the contractor had pre-ordered some excessively thin pavers and, of course, after they'd ordered a, a million pavers, they had decided that there would be heavy vehicle loading. It's one of the things we get time and time again. They say it's a pedestrian area, it's a, it's a plaza for foot traffic and bicycles. So no heavy traffic? Oh, no, no heavy traffic. <laughs> and then, of course, you push them. What, no garbage trucks? No lighting vehicles? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we get those. And for us, heavy vehicles dictate the pavement design. We don't yep. really care about the foot traffic. It provides no loading, yep. not even bicycles and not even a small vehicle. But, you know, these these heavy vehicles with outriggers, cranes that are brought in once a year, they're the thing that dictate the thickness and the performance. So in that particular situation, we had, for argument's sake, a million pavers that were too thin. They were 40 millimetres. And the only solution was to bond them to provide, yes, <laughs> for the benefit of the podcast, Elizabeth's going to look on her face that says, oh, no, please don't bond pavers. <laughs> we have the same reaction. We we can't stand the idea of bonding because it requires so much rigour around quality control that most contractors don't, well, most clients don't have the patience for us, most, most contractors don't have the wherewithal to, to oversee that. I mean, there's a mortar bonding pad. And then there's proper quality control around bonding. So we that that was that was fun and, and interesting because we had to put in place a set of certain measures in terms of material specification, in terms of preparation, in terms of placement, as a monitoring, to ensure that the performance expected was achieved. Because if you get the bonding wrong, these things just pluck off mm. like fun. So that, that was probably the most enjoyable from a pavement design perspective. <laughs> would it be a, a, pa- a pavement that I would enjoy walking over or cycling over? Well, I do actually. I have cycled over that particular pavement many a time. And it's, it's, it's I guess, it's a point of pride to see such a big expanse of pavers and know you're involved. Uh, and it all seems to be performing well so far. And I guess that leads me on to my next question, although you might be biased, but for inner city now, I mean, mm. any inner city kind of urban design, do you think it should be designing for pedestrians and cyclists or what's your view on? I um, am biased because I'm a cyclist. Yeah, well, yeah. maybe. Um, it's funny, I don't consider myself a cyclist. I'm just a, it's, cycles are a, good, a means to an end. Mm. I rode into the city yesterday actually to collect something when the when the crowds weren't there and I do have a unique perspective on the on the use of of, of pavers and and more generally urban treatments and I, I think there's a bit of a split personality going on with councils they don't know whether they are giving 
priority to vehicles yep. or cars. I don't know if they understand who is a noisier constituent, I suppose, a stakeholder, mm. who, who to play to, who to, who to respond to, who to, who, to, who to cater for. I think it's ambiguous at the moment. I think there's some very, some very strange mixed signals about the way urban treatments are developed. George Street is a good example, the way they've converted that into a tram mm. uh, light rail. It's clear that the – well, actually, even that is unclear. Is it clear that the tram has priority or, 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 the, or the humans that are walking along that plaza? Mm. Aesthetically, it looks like a human-friendly space. You've got pedestrian uh, – sorry, light-controlled crossings every uh, 100 metres – but it's really ambiguous as to whether you're allowed to cross in between those locations. There's an inference that you're supposed to cross at the crossing and police don't seem to mind that you so-called jaywalk across mm. these things, but obviously the outcome could be quite significant. So I think council could do or governments generally could do a better job in the design of urban architecture and, and these sorts of paved areas, but ambiguity is the biggest problem. Okay. Yeah, and I, I mean, I also think there's this play on Sydney's such an old city in so many respects and it's very hard to change the psyche around that and also the planning around that. You know, a lot of things are permanently standing, whereas I think you sort of look at other capital cities. I could probably speak to, you know, Adelaide or ACT or Perth and, and they're designed differently and they, they open themselves naturally to a lot more of that fluidity around who it can cater for, but I think because we're in Sydney, I think Sydney's a hard one. My understanding is that a lot of the Barangaroo offices built all of these sort of bike storage facilities and then no one wanted to come in because of the road rage <laughs> on the on the way in. So, you know, they'd sort of catered for it and then obviously there was this other factor that no one anticipated, I guess. City of Sydney are quite bicycle-centric. Mm. I mean, there's a, certainly a passionate team there, which I think, I think is great, but... I used, to, I used to have a rule that I would happily cycle through Europe, but I don't like cycling around Sydney. Mm. And part of the problem is that they, they do these great jobs in catering for pedestrian and cycle movements, but they, you get to a point and they just hang you out to dry. That, that's, yeah. So if you look at the, yesterday, I was riding across the Harbour Bridge and mm. you, you get to the north end of North Sydney and, and it just stops. That's right. There's a staircase down. And you've got to find your way and ferret through the back roads of North Sydney and eventually meet up with the brilliant Gore Hill Freeway cycle mm. park. But it's 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 a road to nowhere and, and you, you're left out. You feel embraced by <laughs> this this approach and then dumped. That's right. For a while. Yeah. Uh, and we there's all these missing links all over Sydney. But you know, generally we're doing well. I mean, if you look at Europe as a as a baseline. They typically have dedicated cycle paths through particularly France and, and Germany. It's absolute heaven. You're completely separated from, from vehicles. In fact, a lot of them have their own traffic light system just yeah. for cycles. But, you know, Europe comes from a, uh, a cycling – there's a lineage there right. where cycling was caught, particularly France – was picked core to its understanding of itself. Mm. Sydney, yeah, we're still fighting for the cars are the most important. You know, right. my car is my the way I get to work, and it's a, it's a, it's a dated mentality. I don't even believe in roads. I think roads are a silly idea. I think mass transport is a, is a much more practical, sustainable solution. Mm. That's it. I love driving my car too. <laughs> Justin, as a, a seasoned engineer around, I guess um, pavements. What are your view on permeable pavements? Seriously untapped in Australia, the potential. It's funny. It, it, it always strikes me as a, a bit unusual that 
that places like England use them extensively, mm. Europe use them extensively, mm. and yet if you look at the degree of torrential rain we get in Australia, we exceed by sometimes threefold the amount of intense rain that that they get at any one time. So I think they're highly underused. We've considered them for a few projects. Particularly one of the reasons we've considered them is that they remove the potential for what we call subsurface drain. So in, in all pavements, there is a subsurface, a below-surface draining structure that keeps water away from the structural layers. Mm. One of the great things about permeable pavements is you can potentially remove that completely. You can use the earth underneath the pavement as a store, a water store, mm. whether it's temporary or permanent or it's soak away. There's a, a number of really interesting opportunities presented there. So very much underused. We, we, we've actually constructed some, in conjunction with some major contractors, years ago now we constructed permeable surfacing at, on the Hume Highway at Takata, Takata mm-hmm. Bypass. And it was, it was brilliant in terms of water spray because water spray is one of the enemies of driving on the road. But in terms of urban development, it's largely unused. What do you think is the biggest barrier to entry around that? people using or considering permeable pavers? The biggest barrier to entry is, as it's always been, government's willingness to specify in the first place. What most people don't understand about designers is that, by and large, we can only use what is permitted by the end client. We are designing within their allowable envelope of options. So part of, or most of what we do is advocating and getting involved in industry. I should say most of what we do when we're not doing design is working with industry and clients to consider new options. And, and Transport for New South Wales is very proactive. They interface with designers all the time. But the wheels turn slowly in government and they are risk averse. They're not going to jump from one option to the next simply because it's the latest and greatest trendy idea. They, they're, as I say, very risk-averse. So if you look at permeable pavements in government, there's no specification for it at the moment, mm. not, none at all. Mm. So we we look at it and, and we do the research. There's no specification structure or design structure that allows you to do it or to use them. There are there are exceptions, but by mm. and large there aren't. And, and we essentially avoid it because we're not about to take on a ground-up design for something that is going to marginally outperform another option. It's much easier if the, the government or the specifier, really more, more technically speaking, is able to provide some uh, a criteria of use. Yeah. Now, moving to trees and pavements, mm. can they can they coexist? Well, they can. They can. I, I really like this, I don't know if it's a product name or it's a generic name, this sort of stratocell type approach this reservoir of root space that can be built under a pavement. I think mm-hmm. they're a fantastic solution. I don't think your average council is going to construct one of those for every shrub that it puts into the, the pathway. Look, it's horses for courses and, and it comes down to life cycle. With, with an asphalt pavement, it will, let's talk about a footway, it will adapt slowly to a, a root system that grows under it. But are they going to commit themselves to maintaining the shape and distortion around that pavement? There are there are better approaches where you get circular stratocell type objects with watering points, and I think some of them are walled to stop the roots extending outwards. That's a much more grown up way to approach these things. So they they can trees and concrete pavements, not really. No, I think they're a pretty bad idea. But I, I 
don't like a cold pavement only environment. I, I do value the integration of flora mm. and, and pavements as much as possible as, as a user. Yes. As a user. In terms of segmental pavements, do you prefer stone or concrete? The one thing I like about, I prefer about concrete pavers is that they're a control product and they may not have the outright strength that, a, that any given quarried stone can have, but quarried stone was never produced in a systematic environment. In other words, the variability of the, the product of stone is, is, is much higher. Now, I imagine the average architect is preferential towards some of the natural finishes, but it seems to me that, especially on, in, in open spaces, concrete pavers can look just as good as a stone product. And from a designer's point of view, we have the confidence being able to specify them, particularly where we put our neck on the line for a design life being achieved. Systematically produced product like concrete paver is, is a sure bet. A stone paver, well, you, you look at what most of the councils do, the requirements for stone pavers are so much higher because they account for a massive variability. Mm. There are responsible applications and others. You know, there are flags in trafficked areas. You know, that's lock you up in asylum stuff. That's crazy. <laughs> may look great, but uh, will it work? No, no, it won't work. Justin, we talked a little bit before about sort of the loss of knowledge and and where I guess you could see some things that could be initiatives that could be undertaken. How do you see young engineers becoming part of the built environment in the future? Right now, we've got a situation where our government is not committed to a, a sustainable, solving some of our sustainability challenges. And I think our young people see that more than anyone else. There's a degree of personal responsibility we see in our young people where they see them themselves as having a pivotal role in influencing outcomes. So the role I see of young engineers is to be passionate activists. If they want to see something change, they should not be waiting for other people to make those decisions. This, this government in particular is very much lagging in terms of policy to dictate sustainability decisions. And what we're seeing with our team particularly is this idea about having personal stake in the outcome. So, for example, some of the things that we're doing Arcadis at the moment is we are we are reporting the footprint in terms of carbon and ISCA EnviroPoints of all of our pavements so that the, the client, the, the, the contractor, depends on who we're working for, can make a decision based on the relative impact of one pavement over another. And, you know, typically environmental reporting is something that's done at the end of a project. It, it's just a reporting point. Sometimes it's a conformance thing, sometimes it's related to funding, but by and large, it, it isn't a decision tool. So what we're seeing young engineers do is express their passion in the form of getting involved in projects that meaningfully affect sustainable outcomes. Mm. And that's it's really, really exciting. We've got, I, I love the people at our organisation. One of the things we, we like to do is challenge them to think outside the box and think randomly and think crazy ideas. There are no such thing as bad ideas. No such thing as stupid questions. Throw out something that sounds absurd. I don't know, a bamboo pavement, no pavement at all, elevated pavement, upside down pavement. We, we need young people to dream, to be dreamers. And that sometimes delivers some profitable, sustainable, hilarious, ridiculous outcomes 
but it, it's a fun time. Yeah. And where would you, or I guess, what would your advice be? You've talked a lot about how young engineers can help shape the future, I guess, once they're in these roles. But for those young engineers that are just starting out, where would you kind of, what would your advice be around what sort of work they should go after? Try a bit of everything. Mm. In our area of mobility, we have a number of disciplines and I'd like to see young people circulate within those disciplines, get a, get a sense of things. And even if it's not about finding their fit, it might be about getting involved in design management. So some of our most um, valuable people in the organisation, our design managers, they understand a little bit about or, or sometimes a lot about every aspect, every sub-discipline. And appreciating those perspectives makes them great design managers. We actually have a uh, we have two programs at our organisation called Global Shapers. Interesting, you mentioned the word shape. Global Shapers and City Shapers, and these are essentially graduates working on projects that are near and dear to their heart, and some crazy ideas. They're app they're app based. They're um, sustainability based. What I would in summary, I think what I'd say is that I'd expect or hope that all engineers would get involved in as much as they possibly can. We are very focused on, for example, analytics or I should say uh, digital. It's a bit of a generic term that I thought was uh, a little bit lame when I first when it was first rolled out, but there is so much in terms of digitization of work, you know, iTwins, federated modeling, we have, we have a whole base camp program of training internally where people can exercise their digital skills, whether it be coding, whether it be managing data. Try everything mm. is the bottom line. No, I think that's insightful advice. Justin, any final thoughts before we go into the rapid-fire questions about the future of paving? The future of paving. The, the first thing that comes to mind is mm. I used to work for a gentleman called Ken Porter at Transport. And he used to talk about the concept of a road quarry, this idea that today's road is tomorrow's material for the road that replaces it. And I think that's a tremendously sustainable, life cycle focused idea. And he used to always urge people to to shoot for that as an ideal. And for as long as we decide to use, build roads for motor vehicles, I think and that might those days might be limited. I noticed that the UK yesterday rolled out 65 air taxi. Ports and of all things, flying cars may yet come to, to come to to this world. For as long as we are building roads, I think that idea, that ideal of reusing what's already there, is one of the most sustainable approaches we could look at in pavements. Thank you, Justin. I've enjoyed your perspective today. I'm sure you've given everyone a lot to think about. We've got some rapid fire questions, and a lot of these you may have answered already, but we'll just shoot them off and see how you go. What's the biggest misconception about segmental pavements? They're all the same. The best aspect about using concrete, segmental and permeable pavements? They're aesthetically superior. They are uh, versatile and and economical. Flag pavers or block pavers? Small format, I think is the term we're banning about at the moment. Absolutely small format. Look, I, I love flags, but by and large, there isn't a pavement in the world that isn't heavily loaded at some stage in its life. So, you know, do it at your peril or or bond them and do a extremely good job with it. <laughs> Why choose concrete segmental pavers or pavements over asphalt? Albedo, first and foremost. That heat island effect is significant, especially in hot cities like Sydney or Brisbane. You're talking about 
10 to 15 degrees on extremely hot days. And, you know, having experienced cities firsthand, I know how much surfaces raise the temperature of these areas. So I think also because of the dry nature of the, the manufacture of um, concrete pavers, the, they're preferential in terms of sustainability as well. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for ideas of what to talk about. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.